We're talking the science of mowing your lawn on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Courtney Estoffi, Laura Johnston, and Lisa Garvin. And Courtney, you get to deal with lawns. The Cleveland Heights mayor is celebrating no mow May. It's not an easy thing to say. By declining to fine residents who let their lawns go to weed in the month of May. But is he acting on silly science? Is there any good reason not to mow your lawn in May other than sloth? Well, you know, I might let listeners decide on that one, frankly, because I, I don't know if I, I've been able to discern the real answer here. But our gardening columnist, Susan Brownstein, kind of walked us through what this movement's about and, and gives us some recommendations about maybe striking a balance somewhere in the middle. So so let's back up. Like you said, Cleveland Heights Mayor Khalil Soren issued an executive order Last week, he's not looking to cite people for tall grass if they participate in this no mow May movement, which apparently has been gaining steam in the last couple years. It started in the UK, and and as part of this, the city is going to restrict its own mowing on public properties and and roadway medians. But you know, the the the, th- the theory here is that letting weeds grow, especially during May, and and letting them flower out, is going to make more pollen available can feed the pollinators during a time of the year when there isn't much else in bloom. So that's kind of the theory behind this. But Susan kind of outlines there might be somewhere in middle ground you can kind of take. Basically, there's two camps around No Mo May. There's people who love their green, straight grass, suburban looking, you know, lawns, as you imagine them. And then there's the more ecological purists who want lawns to be replaced with meadows of native flowers and tall grasses. And and basically, these two camps do agree on one thing when it comes to Nomo May, the dandelions got to go. You know, both of these groups kind of agree that either they're ugly and they mar pretty green grass lawns, or they're a non-native invasive species that, that don't help the local environment. Yeah, I I guess look, let's face it, lawns are stupid. We spend, you know, tons of money doing them, people fertilize them, it runs off, it does all sorts of things. But when I read the mayor's statement, I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. You let a month of weed flowers grow, the pollinators jump in. But then we ran a wire story in the Plain Dealer over the weekend and said, this is complete hokum, that this doesn't mean anything. It doesn't do anything. And it's just a phony feel good. And like you said, Susan kind of came down in the middle. If we all got rid of our lawns and used native plants and did all of that, it would be wonderful. But the idea of letting your lawn grow to a foot high, remember in May, grass grows really, really thick and gums down lawnmowers. And so you're letting it grow even taller. The the story that we ran over the weekend says, this is dumb. It doesn't do anything. You're still going to mow it all down. Well, I want to know how you're going to mow in June if you don't mow in May, because even mowing once a week in May is really difficult at times. And I'm with you. I didn't know that dandelions were so bad. Like I do use an herbicide. I still have spots popping up in my lawn, but I didn't realize that they're actually a problem. And it makes me feel like, you know, good that I've done something about it. But Susan does say, you know, keep your, your lawnmower at, I think she said four inches. I'm at the tallest setting and it's still difficult to mow my lawn at, at points. So like, you know, you don't need the super short, like, um, crew cut grass right now. Like let it grow a little longer. That'll crowd out some of those 
uh, weeds anyway. So yeah, like Courtney yeah, said, there's a middle ground. But you're trying to get rid of weeds. What the no mow people are saying is let the green the weeds go to seed. Let them flower. But the dandelions are not are not good weeds. Is that w- what I learned from Susan's story? Is that that's not what you want. The pollinators can't use that. So you're much better off planting native plants like you know, black eyed Susans and all the other native plants that they have in your gardens. And we talked a little while on this podcast about that Shaker Heights pollinator garden that the kids have at the school. Better off to take your, your pretty annual beds and do native with that than try to do no mo may and help bees. Well, my landscaper has not done my backyard at all. So my grass hasn't been cut since November, I guess, in the back. Um, because it's too wet back there. So, um, and this is kind of late in the year for him not to be cutting, but I don't fertilize or use pesticides. So I have creeping Charlie that's like kind of taking over my yard, but I kind of like it. And I think the animals do too. I have more animals in my yard than my neighbors. The, uh, the wire story we ran said that yes, dandelions don't offer a lot of nutrition to the pollinators, but because of the time of year, it's better than nothing. They get something mm-hmm. out of it. Anyway, I, it's interesting that a mayor has set a policy based on some science that is extremely questionable and the, the yards, the, the empty lots in Cleveland Heights are going to look like hell by the time we get to June. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've been talking a lot about childcare and how it plays into American life, and we've used Highland Software as a model for how employers can help. No more. Laura, what is happening to Highland's Child Care Center? It's closing, along with part of that 1,000 layoffs that they're doing company-wide. Highland is just about the only company I have found which offered its own child care center where it owned the space and employed the staff itself. And I was really looking forward to digging in, finding out their philosophy and asking why more companies didn't do this. Like It seems like such a benefit that people would want to work at your company if they can visit their kids during the day, especially when they're babies, you know, and, and you're breastfeeding and and you are, it's hard to be separated. I would think it would actually be a huge benefit to lure people to work there. But, um, and, and that's what they said they founded it in, in 2002. The CEO determined that coworkers would be happier and more productive if they offered on-site daycare. It also made me think of like, you know, Google and those tech companies, they provide free breakfast and lunch for a lot of employees. And it's like, okay, if I can eat at my desk, then I'm just going to keep working, right? And I don't have to worry about grocery shopping. Like if your kids are properly cared for, you can work up till you know the very end. You don't have to leave early to go get them. But they're closing. They said they're going to be changing some of their Westlake footprint. They remain committed to Northeast Ohio. Their headquarters will remain in Westlake, but their real estate portfolio will likely change. Yeah, I. You've pointed out that it shouldn't fall on employers to provide this service. That it's an no. expensive service, and if we as a society want to help people raise kids, have more kids, because we have a, a dwindling workforce, then the government should get involved. We talked earlier in the week about how Canada is making it extremely reasonable for people to pay for daycare. It's just sad that it seemed like Highland had an answer for building its workforce, for attracting employees. But I guess not. I guess it wasn't as effective a tool at winning people over as we thought. Right. And, and like they said, they're going to change their real estate footprint. So I don't know what that means about 
their headquarters there and what they're going to do with it. I don't, it's not like they subsidize this childcare from what I've heard. And it, we, we didn't get this information from the company, but it's not like it was cheap. You were paying market rate, but it was that idea of you didn't have that drop off and then go to work, right? Everything was in one place. So it just made it a lot more convenient for families. It, you know, it, it does make a lot of sense. I don't really understand. I think there's a kinder care that's in university, circle that's close to the clinic, but then again, it's not like owned by the clinic. So I, I, I'd love to still dig in why this isn't a movement among American businesses. Well, if they have hybrid workers, then on the days they are at home, they were having to drive to the office anyway to drop their kid <laughs> off. So maybe that plays into it. Just a, maybe. It was a hot story on our site. Lots of people were reading it yesterday. It's today in Ohio. Lisa, you got it. Today is the deadline for Ohio lawmakers bent on ending majority rule in the state to approve a special election for August. They took a step in that direction. It all comes down to today. What did they do Tuesday? And one more time, what's at stake here? The House Rules and Reference Committee voted 7-5 to five yesterday to refer Senate Joint Resolution 2 to the full House for a vote. All the Republicans on the committee voted yes, except Jay Edwards of Athens County, who voted with the Democrats. So as a reminder, SJR2 is a companion to House Joint Resolution 1, which calls for 60% approval for any constitutional amendments put before voters. But this vote would just require a simple majority to pass. So Representative Sharon Ray, who's a Republican from Medina County, she proposed an amendment that would put it on the November ballot. She's a former elections official, and she opposes August elections because of the difficult logistics that it poses for election workers. But then she voted to advance the measure to the full House. So that November date amendment could change back to August today when the full House convenes. House Speaker Jason Stevens is noncommittal on that issue. He said that many uh, Republican caucus members are concerned with an August election. Uh, Democratic Minority Leader Allison Russo said she wouldn't be surprised if the August election was restored. But the bill that was calling for that election, Senate Bill 92, was abandoned. Uh, that would have allowed the special election and would have set $20 million aside to pay for it. But apparently some Republicans in the House believe that that's not legally necessary. Yeah, I know. But by doing that, I think they set up a serious legal challenge to what they are doing. By not having mm -hmm. that companion bill, they jeopardize this in the courts. I it, I have no idea what's going to happen today. Uh, Jason Stevens mm -hmm. has been noncommittal. There are a bunch of Republicans that realize this could really work against them. Breaking the rules, bending the rules, being sleazy. And let's face it, it's an anti-democratic movement. It's to reduce the value of your vote. It's it's going to put the 40% of Ohio in charge of the 60% of Ohio. And a whole lot of people are against that. There was a poll that came out. It was from one of the people fighting this yesterday that found 70% of Ohio is dead set against this. This could blow up in all their faces if they proceed. It's going to be a big day for the future yeah. of voting in Ohio. And judging by the uh, letters to the editor, just the ones that were published in The Plain Dealer, I mean, there are so many people. So it obviously st is stirring up the public, judging by the volume of letters I've seen published. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think this is hugely unpopular. But in state after state, Republicans have thought that they could win these things on the ballot when it comes to abortion style 
issues. They're going it, to, it'll blow up in their face and, and build momentum for the November abortion amendment. I just don't understand how that one representative, you know, she doesn't want there to be an August election. So she changes the changes what they're passing, how she feels that they're just going to change it right back. Well, she'll like, vote against it. I mean, she's a vote. Right. No. Okay. Mm-hmm. But she's the one who allowed it to get to the floor in the first place. And then they switch it on her. Like that doesn't seem fair at all. No, and you also have the Democrats that supported Stevens for House Speaker. You got to think that they're talking to him saying, hey, we got you in. You have got to give us something here. This is vitally important. And Stevens isn't in favor of August elections, or it sounded like at the beginning of the year, the issue overall. We'll be talking about it tomorrow. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With modern parking meters likely coming to Cleveland, we have an idea of how Mayor Justin Bibb plans to make more money off them with higher parking fees and no more free weekends. Courtney, what's the latest? Yeah, so some of the legislation that's going to need to pass city council to allow Bibb to install these smart meters has has gone to city council this week. So this is kind of a step where we could see what he was thinking when it comes to how rates could be raised, how enforcement could change. And, and like I said, we knew these changes were coming, but here they are. And, and, and what these pieces of legislation introduced to city council would do is, is really expand the hours of possible enforcement right now, enforcement downtown on weekdays, ends at 6 p.m. You can you can stop feeding the meters at 6 p.m., right? What this change would do would allow the city to go as late as 10 p.m. for enforcement. Don't know if that'll be the final cutoff time, but it gives them that wiggle room and ability. And it would also, if city council agrees to it, let members of Bibb's administration set the parking rates. So right now it's between 50 cents and a dollar an hour. That's that's codified in the city code. What Bib wants to do going forward is not go back to city council to get approval for when those rates change. He wants to be able to set them within his board of control. And, and that kind of aligns with what his administration's talked about before. They want to do dynamic pricing. Some spots could change and, and cost more during big downtown events like sports games. And I think that that would give them more flexibility instead of having to go back to city council every time they want to change or raise parking rates. But but also as part of this slew of changes, this caught my eye immediately when I was reading through the legislation. There's a big price hike coming potentially to the Muni lot. So Brown's tailgaters could be feeling this as early as this fall. The I can't wait to see how council deals with this because as we've talked about before, when this came up 20, 25 years ago, it was stopped by council. The council under Frank Jackson said, no, we're not going to charge people to park on the weekends. We're not going to make it more difficult for people who are already dealing with financial strain. There's the push pull. It's like, well, but when people from the suburbs come in, they have money. They're not, they're not living in poverty. They can afford the park. In the previous administration, they said, yeah, but this affects our residents who a lot of whom live in poverty. This isn't fair. Where will this council come down? Do you have any prediction? I'm going to not wager a prediction at the moment. Uh, You know, we're going to have to see, you know, they could tweak it. Right. So if Bib wants to go till 10 p.m., there could be a compromise there. And they say, no, maybe the latest you can go is eight. So there's room for negotiation and meeting somewhere in the middle if that's the tag council's you know taken here but 
what what would be interesting is, you know, a parking consultant hired by former Frank former Mayor Frank Jackson really recommended the, these changes to Cleveland's parking, saying the city could modernize in a lot of ways that other cities have. And and you've got to think that the change in work from home and what the pandemic has done to downtown life, you know, maybe maybe there is an opportunity to get parking revenue for people coming downtown in the evenings to dine and go out in a way that maybe the need isn't there as much during the daytime for the commuters. You know, there there are changing patterns to downtown usage here. And, and I think these changes would seek to capture more the nightlife and entertainment needs of people going out in the evenings and weekends. I don't you know, know, though. You have television news, local television news, night after night, power, you know, just going on and on about crime, 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 crime. The thugs are out there scaring the hell out of everybody in the suburbs who, who are hesitant to come downtown anyway, making it more expensive to park your car when you can drive to any suburban restaurant and park for free and conveniently might discourage a whole lot of people from coming downtown. They're already afraid because television tells them they're going to get shot to death and now it'll cost them a fortune. It, it, there's a, this could hurt traffic in downtown. This could harm the restaurant industry. I hate paying for parking. I am the biggest fan of park and walk, like wherever I can find a spot in the street. And when I go down to Playhouse Square, I always park in Chester and I walk and, and cause you know, parking meters end at six. And so I always park for free and, I mean, to be fair, if I'm spending hundreds of dollars at Playhouse Square for tickets every year, like I should be able to pay a couple of bucks every time I park on the street. I don't want to, but I do think it would be fair. I'm driving down there. I'm parking. I would be interested to know if the parking garage owners have put in a say on this because if if I were them, I'd be like, yes, you should charge because then more people will park in my garage if they have to park to pay, pay to park on the street. Hey, well, I would assume that the, the street parking fees just based on the city's analysis, what I was reading through would still be, you know, less than garages and, and it wouldn't yeah. be a fortune like necessarily a normal weeknight. Right. I'll pay $5. Like that seems reasonable to me. I just don't want to pay 50. I think that's more. What <laughs> we'll we're see. Yeah. We'll see what's next. You're listening to today in Ohio. How many cruise ships are coming to Cleveland this summer and how much do some of these trips cost the passengers, Laura? Okay, well, if we're talking about a lot of money after parking meters, you're going to be jaw-dropped in this because you could spend 12 grand on a week in the Great Lakes on a cruise ship. Uh, 53 cruises will dock downtown this summer. That's as many as 10,000 passengers, twice as many cruise stops as 2019, and it's been growing every year. Obviously, that was the year before the COVID pandemic basically shut down the cruise industry as well as the world, um, as well as the border with Canada, because these cruise ships go between the countries. That's one of the, the reasons that people like these so much, is you can see all sorts of different places in two countries on a cruise through the Great Lakes in one week. So on Saturday, September 23rd, there'll actually be three ships docked in Cleveland at the same time, which sounds kind of mind boggling. Uh, there are a couple of news cruise lines making their first stops in Cleveland. Viking, the Switzerland-based company known for its high-end European river cruises that every time I ever watched Downton Abbey, I would watch a very long commercial for. Um, Ponant, a luxury French cruise line, and Pearl Seas, based in Connecticut. So um, up overall... The Cruise the Great Lakes Industry Trade Group are expecting 170,000 passenger visits to Great Lake ports. That's up 15% over last year. Economic impact of $180 million. 
The, the idea of cruising all of the Great Lakes is appealing, but that mm-hmm. price does seem a bit... Wait, okay, that is like... That's that Viking. That is the Viking. Yeah, you, that's Viking. I, when I checked a couple of years ago on the one that was called Victory, but has since changed their name, uh, it was about 5000 So they're not cheap. You, you know, you're not going to get a couple hundred dollar deal. And these tend to appeal to older retired people who have more time. Um, and these are smaller ships. They don't have like the water slide of like a Caribbean cruise, but you, they have all sorts of itineraries that you can do on the mainland. And that's why people like Cleveland so much is there's so much to do right there when you get off. Yeah. It's a lot of people coming into Cleveland. It's a, it's a cool development for the lakefront. So people will be able to use the lakefront from the water side, not as much on the land side until we get that fixed. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Digital C offered some more details of its plan for rolling out high-speed internet throughout Cleveland, a subject we discussed on Monday. What details did Digital C offer up, Lisa? Yeah, this is a $40 million public and private plan to provide internet service to Cleveland. So Digital C says they're going to roll this out in three six-month phases. The first phase will be the east side, wards 5, 6, 7, and 9. That would be Central, Fairfax, Asiatown, and parts of Buckeye Shaker and Kinsman. The second phase will be both east and west sides, wards 8, 10, 11, 14, and 16. So that would be like Mount Pleasant, Collinwood, Woodland Hills, Euclid Green, West Boulevard, Clark Fulton, and Bellaire Puritus. And then the third phase would be the entire city. So the rest of the wards. Um, what they're going to do is they're going to be replacing repla- remote nodes on top of 70-foot structures, be it a tower or a building or whatever. And then these would connect to existing fiber optic systems. There is a presence in several neighborhoods already with Digital C. It's available to 23,000 homes, but they have only 2,000 customers. And there's a little bit of skepticism about whether Digital C can pull this off on an aggressive timeline. They're saying it's going to take about 18 months. Um, But they promised Back in 2015, they promised they would be linking up 40,000 homes by 2024. We know that's not going to happen. And then Cleveland, the city, fell behind on approving RFPs back in June 2022. It took almost a year instead of just three months, as they predicted. And Councilman Kevin Conwell says, can you live up to your promise? We're going to wait and see. And the City Utilities Commission Chair Brian Casey says, uh, said to Digital C, well, with your history, can we believe your aggressive timeline? So we'll have to see. Yeah, I, I don't see it. I'm highly skeptical. Digital C always talks big, but has never delivered big. It delivers small. Already, the speed that they're offering is a fraction of what the city had wanted. It's still, I guess, technically high speed, but it's not at the level the city had hoped for. Uh, I hope they can do it, but but every time we've looked at them in the past, they kind of fall short. So I'm not surprised to hear the council skepticism. I think anybody that's been paying attention would have a dose of it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Who's the new CEO of the Cleveland Schools and what is his background, Courtney? Yeah, Dr. Warren Morgan was tapped yesterday, officially announced as the next CEO of Cleveland Public Schools. There was a press conference with the mayor and the mayor appointed school board. And they named Warren as the man for the job. He's the chief academic officer for Indianapolis Public Schools. I think that's you know within about 5,000 students of Cleveland's district, so they're pretty similar in size. And, and Morgan was one of two finalists up for the job to replace 
Eric Gordon. He's been at the helm for 11 years and and Morgan was one of 132 applicants to seek to succeed Gordon. Little about Morgan, he's a Chicago native. He spent much of his career in the Midwest, including two years in Cleveland from 2014 to 2016. At, at CMSD, he was a network leader and academic superintendent. And then his other big go- big gig before he was at Indianapolis Public Schools was as a, a the executive director for the Teach for America program in St. Louis. And he served as a White House fellow during the years between the, you know, Obama transitioning to Trump administration. I, look, Eric Gordon has been a, a very special CEO. The kids that are graduating this year were in second grade when he became the CEO. He has stayed the long path. He has done incredible work. He's once in a generation kind of leader. So replacing him is nearly impossible. I hope Morgan is good. I am troubled by the fact that he has not spent more than a year or two in any one place, which you can argue that's a good thing, right? If you if you go to a whole bunch of different places, spend a couple years, you learn all the best practices of those organizations, and you can form a leadership strategy. The downside is you never stay long enough to measure your success or be held accountable for it. If, if you go in for two years and you put in all these systems and then you dance away, how do we know if they're effective? The one line in the story that I thought was a little bit shaky was that he put in plans in Indianapolis that that helped the district recover from the pandemic. And my question to that is, how do you know? We're still so close to the pandemic. How can you say that? Yeah, I, you know, not, not, not sure on that. It, it, he did start in that role in Indianapolis public schools just a few months into the pandemic. So he was there during the height and heat of all the changes in remote learning So, I mean, he did have a leadership role during the pandemic. The outcomes after that, I can't really say. But we do know a little bit more about why why Bibb wanted him as the guy for the job. Uh, You know, Bibb and student interview panelists during part of this vetting process named a couple things that stood out for Morgan that helped him pick him. They, They basically said his empathy, his approachable demeanor, and his track record so far, you know, were some of the things that really stuck with them. And and Morgan told us that he's already put together kind of how he wants to kick off his time in Cleveland. And and that's kind of what, what you would expect. He wants to listen, learn, and lead. He said he wants to get to know the district, talk to people, understand what's working, and what changes people might want to see that he might be ushering in. Did anybody ask him if he plans to stick around longer than he has stayed at his previous jobs? I'm not seeing a sign of that in the story. (laughs) (laughs) It was weird. He said, I'm home. And he was in Cleveland for two years. It's not really coming home. Look, Justin Bibb had the similar record. He never worked very long in any one place. And so far, we're liking what we're seeing from him as mayor. Maybe that'll be the case with Morgan as well. Lots to come. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The gambling steamroller keeps on going in Ohio. Did we break another record in March, Lisa? 
Yes, we did. Ohio's 11 racinos and casinos raked in $217.7 million in revenue in March. That break broke a monthly record for the third consecutive time, and it beat March of last year by $1.4 million. So first quarter revenue for our racinos and casinos are just over $611 million. Um, the racinos raked in the seven racinos, which just have slots. They broke about even compared to last March, $122.7 million. The four casinos got $95 million in revenues from slots and table games. That's up $1.7 million. So gambling revenue in Ohio has increased every year except for 2020, and the pandemic was you know, the reason for that. And revenue equals the money that is kept by the, by the houses after paying out winners, but this is before state taxes and fees. I haven't driven by the Racinos in a while, but I imagine that it's a sea of parked cars because to rake in that kind of money, people have got to be going there in huge numbers. And I just, who are these people that have all this time to go gamble? <laughs> <laughs> but but interesting, and this is kind of an outlier, Jack Thistledown uh, brought in $16.7 million from March. That's actually down a million from last year, but they're the only ones who had, you know, a, a decrease. And this is all happening while sports gambling, where people can do it from their sofas, has also exploded. So we thought when sports gambling allowed people to start gambling from home would cut into this, but clearly not, except maybe in the thistledown. Clearly, they're complementary, which I don't know that anyone saw coming. It's Today in Ohio. We'll leave it there. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back talking about the news on Thursday.